NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Scared to Death is explicit in every way. Please take care while listening. Whether thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no heart, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink. Thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps, Peepers, Roberts, and Annabelles. I'm Dan. Hello, Dan. I'm Lindsay Lulu. A uh, couple quick things and then we're off. Uh, I love this week's merch announcement. Uh, Logan got extra clever with this one. Cute. Do you have squeaky pipes? <laughs> Wait. I, okay. Uh, is this a water bottle? No. Dang Does it. your shower moan in the middle of the night? Does my shower moan in the middle of the night? Does your sink water unexpectedly turn into blood? Yeah. If yes, sounds like you got a ghost, you should probably call Darren's Plumbing at 1-800-STD-GTFO. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great. We'll make them get the fuck out. Uh, brand new Darren's Plumbing Tee and long sleeve now available in the Bad Magic merch store. Cool illustration of Darren's Plumbing Van parked outside a home clearly haunted by demons. You can head on over to badmagicmerch.com at least check out the artwork. Funny. I love that there's a Darren uh, working as a paranormal plumber now. <laughs> I love it because I think that um, in some stories that we've had, huh? we've we've had well, we for sure have had plumbers mm-hmm. who like uh, recently we had a story about. Well, I don't want to say because I had to work, I had to write the episodes from all the way into September. Yeah. So there's so many to finish the book, so we could sure, get it sure. to printing. So there are so many stories floating in my brain. I was about to tell you a story that I'm like. Oh, wait. I don't know if I've actually told it here or yeah. if I've just read it and prepared it for the book. So Got never it. mind. Never mind. Uh, and then you have our uh, monthly donation. It's just a little uh, quick note on that again, right? Yeah, just an update on the yeah. amount since uh, thanks for always being patient with us. Uh, you know, we always record yeah. in advance so that uh, we do our very best to never, ever miss an episode. We're almost 200 episodes in. Yeah. Never, never, ever missed a week. And we like to keep that going. Uh, so just as a reminder, in honor of Pride Month, we are donating here locally to the North Idaho Pride Alliance, whose mission is to connect LGBTQIA plus alphabet soup, as our friends say, people and allies to various community groups so that they can create a more inclusive North Idaho through networking, educating, and advocating. Uh, we love this community of people. We have the North Idaho gem, Gemstones, uh, the drag queens, last year at summer mm-hmm. camp. And uh, they were just incredible people. And we know that they're a part of this community as well. We'll be donating donating. $13,540 to the North Idaho Pride Alliance and putting another $1,505 into the scholarship fund for 2024. Um, yeah, if you'd like to learn more about the NIPA, you can visit 
NIPrideAlliance.com. Perfect. Dope. And then quick note that next week is our 200th episode. Uh, so we're going to stick, a, you know, thank you for sticking around for 200 straight weeks of Scared to Death. That's awesome. Coming up on our four-year anniversary. And just like for the 100th episode, we'll turn the show into a little drinking game if you would like to play. The episode will also feature an extra story from me, some extra banter at the end, similar to our bonus episodes, uh, talking about, uh, you know, just the fun ride that this has truly been. And that's next week. Right now, we have this week's stories to tell. Yes. And if you're not a drinker, you could just like play the game with like chocolate milk. Yeah. Or tea. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, How many stories do you have this week, beautiful girl? Oh, thank you, sweetheart. Yeah. I have two. And unplanned, it just happened this way. My first story is about the little girl in the basement. And my second story is about the little boy in the hallway. Okay, it's some little kids. Yeah. Well, little kids, both in real life and in the afterlife are creepy. <laughs> uh, my first of two stories set in one of the creepiest places I've come across in a while. Your head. Uh, no. Hundreds of miles of tunnels under the streets and casinos of Las Vegas. Oh. In this story, we'll explore the story of uh, someone claiming they encountered something in a tunnel under Vegas's Sand Hill Road. Then for my next story, we'll return to the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Oh, boy. Examine the case of the Lindley Street poltergeist, a haunting just a few miles from where the Warrens lived in Bridgeport, Connecticut, Made a bunch of headlines in the 70s, relatively unknown now, and we'll help change that today. Okay. You want to get all socked and cozied up before I tell my first tale? Check out these suckers. These are, apparently people heard me when I said I love compression socks, and they're <laughs> little seals. Those are cute. They are cute, and they match my blue jumpsuit, so thank you. Uh, okay, some creepy moments and some terribly sad moments, actually, before I jump into the paranormal aspects of this first story. Some sources say roughly 200. Others say almost 600. All agree that there are literally hundreds of miles of giant tunnels under the Las Vegas Strip and the surrounding city and valley. If you're like me, upon hearing that for the first time, you are likely wondering, why? Why are there so many tunnels? Mobster getaway. Nope. In a word, floods. Las Vegas is very prone to flash floods, and since just a few feet of water can cause literally billions of dollars in damage to the very many expensive state-of-the-art casinos found all along the Strip, something had to be done. Now, the tunnels were constructed to prevent further disaster after a massive flood did cause major damage around Caesars Palace in 1975. And now one can enter these tunnels at various points all around the city, including next to some of the most popular casinos. While some tunnels are just four to five feet high, Others are 15 feet high or more. Once inside them, if you're not careful, you can quickly find yourself lost in a dark labyrinth a long ways from any exit. The tunnels can be a dark and dangerous place. None of them have any lights, and they can become heavily flooded in minutes. Millions of gallons of rushing water suddenly raging through a vast maze of concrete. And when the, fl uh, the tunnels flood like this, people do die. An unknown amount of deaths occur in the tunnels every year. Over 1,500 people are estimated to be living in these tunnels right now. And the next time they fill with water, there's a good chance that one of them, maybe even a few of them, won't be able to escape to the surface in time. Yeah, there's a large homeless population living underneath the city of Las Vegas. Uh, numerous portions of the tunnels are covered in graffiti, garbage, rudimentary dwellings, drug paraphernalia, and despair, and also are said to be haunted. One area is reputably uh, haunted more than any other, the tunnels beneath Sand Hill Road. The tunnels of Sand Hill Road are said in many publications to be the most haunted place in all of Las Vegas, a city with no shortage of allegedly haunted locations. 
the area near a few tunnel entrances along Sand Hill Road between Olive and Charleston Streets, said to be haunted by at least three separate spirits. Two of the apparitions are alleged to be the ghosts of an unknown couple. According to legend, the couple was riding on their motorcycle down Olive Street when they crashed into some construction debris near some entrances to the Sand Hill Road tunnels and tragically died at the scene. And at least a part of them, if the rumors are true, have never left. Uh, or has never left. A pair of shadows has been spotted at the scene of their demise. Cold spots have been found, and people have reported feeling touched by something. Uh, the third spirit appears as the ghost of an elderly woman who chases drivers on a dirt road near the tunnel entrance. She only seems to appear when vehicles are present. She's known as the Screaming Spectre, and for reasons unknown, she most often accosts slow-moving vehicles in the early morning hours, shortly before the sun is set to rise. I don't know why that's so funny to me. <laughs> and there are uh, the spirits inside the tunnels under Sand Hill Road. They don't have names and any sources or posts that I can find. Based on reports, it seems like there are much more than three entities down underneath the ground. Many people have reported hearing disembodied moans and wails. Others have heard the disturbing sounds of inhuman laughter. Sights of shadows moving in ways they shouldn't abound. Writers from the website Only in Your State, who investigated the area around the entrance to the tunnels, reported, Whereas we personally didn't hear any creepy moans or see a woman's ghost chasing after our vehicle, we were suddenly overcome by a severe wave of nausea while parked on the safe side of the road. Once we left, we felt better, and several minutes later we returned where we were, and once again, we were overwhelmed by severe nausea. While reporting especially intense paranormal experiences here are rare, they do happen as detailed by one unnamed individual's claims in an online forum. Time now for the tale of It Came From The Tunnel. I know that my story is going to sound unbelievable. All I can ask is that you keep an open mind as you read this. I was a sanitation worker for the city of Las Vegas. It wasn't my favorite job, but I needed the money after I got laid off due to budget cuts. Working for the city was, for me, always going to be a temporary thing, just until I found something better. The pay and the benefits were good, but the job duties were certainly not something I ever looked forward to when I'd begin my shift. Some of my job responsibilities were cleaning up nasty stuff no one else wants to deal with. Rotten trash, human excrement, dead animals, and theoretically, assisting with cleanup related to dead bodies. I never had to do that myself, but I'd heard plenty of stories from some of the guys I worked with. With all that in mind... I wasn't too surprised when I got assigned to check out a foul odor coming from the tunnels at Sand Hill Road. I remember being annoyed by the assignment. I knew if I didn't find a better job soon, I was likely to get up and close with rotting human remains. Oh, get up and close with rotting human remains, but I really didn't want it to be that day. I was exhausted. I'd stayed up way too late the night before, finishing binging a final season of a show, and I drank two energy drinks before 9 a.m. just to not feel like a zombie. As irritated as I was, off I went. It's not like I had much of a choice if I wanted to keep my job. Myself and my coworker for the day, a grumpy older guy I'll call Alan, hopped into a city truck and headed out to the site. Alan drove. I stared out the window, trying not to fall asleep. In order to fight off all the drowsiness, I tried to make conversation with him. I asked him if he'd ever seen a dead body while he was working. He reluctantly told me that he had, an older woman who lived alone. And then he proceeded to share all the details of what he went through that day. And I mean all the details. I quickly regretted asking. The story he told was so sad and honestly, truly disgusting in moments. By the time he was done, the environment in the truck had turned awkward and depressing. But I guess it helped pass the time. Before I knew it, we'd arrived. 
We didn't find anything dead when we slowly cruised around the area uh, near the tunnel entrance. And we couldn't see anything in the immediate vicinity. And that was very unfortunate. Because even from the truck, we could smell something. Something rotten. It was soon obvious that whatever was causing that smell was definitely inside the tunnels. I unbuckled my seatbelt. Alan didn't move. I hesitated before I opened the door, shooting him a questioning look. Go on, he told me, jerking his head towards the tunnels. I'll be right here. It, it took everything in me not to roll my eyes. I should have expected that, since I was a new guy. I grabbed the key to unlock the gate, a flashlight, and stepped outside. As I walked closer to the entrance to several tunnels, the smell of something foul in the air got worse and worse, amplified by the summer heat. I guessed that it was coming from the middle tunnel. Bringing my shirt up over my nose, I clicked on the flashlight and tried to see inside. Nothing but trash and graffiti. I repeated the process at each tunnel entrance. I still wasn't able to see the source of the disgusting smell. I jogged back up to the truck and knocked on the window. Alan begrudgingly rolled it down a few inches. There's nothing there, I said. Is the smell gone? Well, no, but I don't see anything. What should we do? He gave me a classic, are you serious look? Is there some kind of camera we can send down there, or... He took a slightly irritated breath before answering and told me I would just have to crawl into the tunnel and see what I could find. I was hating my life by this point and missing the old job that I used to complain about. If only these tunnels were bigger like so many others, but I'd have to almost crawl into this one. It couldn't be more than four feet high. I hyped myself up as I stood in front of the tunnel, covering my nose with my shirt again. I repeated the directions in my head, crawl through the tunnel, find the source of the smell, and then get the hell out. I tried to convince myself that I was making a bigger deal out of it than I was. It's not like I'm claustrophobic. And the tunnels weren't that small. But there was just something about the thought of entering those tunnels that gave me the creeps. Still, I reasoned that since these tunnels weren't as big, they also weren't as livable as some of the others. I reminded myself that there shouldn't be anything inside besides trash and whatever small dead animal I had to drag out. An animal much smaller than a person. I equipped myself with a headlamp, thick gloves, and some safety goggles. Crouching down, I first stuck my head inside the middle tunnel, and the smell made me gag. Get in, get out, I told myself. Faster the better. I started moving forward, an awkward bent-over shovel mixed with a crawl. Uh, mixed over shuffle. Uh, I could still see a tiny bit of light from the outside, but I was also getting very creeped out. It was so dark. So dark that without my headlamp, I wouldn't really be able to see much of anything around me. Sunlight dies fast in these tunnels. It's like it doesn't reach more than a foot inside of them. Almost as if there's some invisible and unnatural barrier separating the light from the dark. Right as I was thinking about all this, as I started to daydream about how terrible it would be for my headlamp to go out, I got lucky. After only about a minute of crawling and shuffling, I found the culprit. A dead raccoon. Thank you, Jesus. Probably got hit by a car and then crawled inside to die. As quickly as possible, I disposed of it inside one of our industrial trash bags, trying to hold it as far away from me as possible. Just as I was about to start crawling out, my headlamp flickered, then went out completely. I smacked it with the palm of my hand, hoping to somehow get the batteries to start working again. And at that exact moment, I swore I felt someone's fingertips brush my outstretched arm. I jerked back, dropping the bag with the dead raccoon and nearly falling over. My headlamp flipped back on. Weird. I muttered out loud. The sensation was so strange. The pressure was stronger than the brush of a feather or the feeling of a bug landing on your skin, but it was still soft, like someone had gently tapped four fingers against my arm. 
It was certainly odd, but I didn't think too much of it in that moment. Technology malfunctioned all the time, and who hasn't ever felt a phantom sensation when they're in a creepy place? It was what happened next that really rattled me. I was shuffling towards the entrance as fast as I could, dead raccoon back in hand, when my headlamp flickered out again. I was almost out at this point, but daylight was still just beyond my reach. This time I felt something brush against my back, and I felt the sensation of someone whispering in my ear. I heard something, but couldn't quite make out the words. A violent shudder rolled through me, and I turned around to try and see what was going on, but was met with complete darkness. Deciding I wasn't staying in there a second longer, I shuffled out as fast as I could and ran to the truck, not caring if I looked like an idiot. After that, I disposed of that dead raccoon and got on with my day, or at least tried to. The rest of my shift, I couldn't stop thinking about what happened. I kept trying to analyze it and come up with some sort of reasonable explanation. The more I rolled around in my mind, the more I felt an intense need to go back to the tunnel and take another look. Try and find something that would explain what had happened to me. Something that would give me a sigh of relief, maybe even a chuckle. Then I could laugh on the drive home about how ridiculous I'd been, thinking I'd been touched by some, what, creature? Ghost? That evening, after grabbing a speedy dinner and changing out of my work clothes, I headed back. I wouldn't be able to get inside the tunnel again without the key, but I could at least drive by and check things out, calm my nerves, and convince myself that it was just a regular concrete tunnel, like all the others in the city. And there was nothing creepy living in it. I went out just as the sun was setting. It was about a 20-minute drive from my apartment, so it was dark by the time I got there. Not pitch black, but the sun had fully set. I slowly pulled up to the entrance to the tunnels, parking near a streetlight for some small sense of comfort. I approached the gate, wrapping my hands around the bars and pressing my face against the metal. I knew it was pointless, but I looked into the tunnel where I'd found the raccoon and tried to see into the darkness. I shone the flashlight I brought inside, but the beam wasn't powerful enough to light things up nearly as much as I'd hoped. I wondered if there could really be someone living in there, but I quickly dismissed that as impossible. If they were close enough to touch me, I would have heard them approaching and those tunnels weren't tall enough for someone to live in anyway. I convinced myself as best I could that it was all in my head, maybe a cold chill or goosebumps, and walked back to my car. I got in, picked a playlist for the drive home, and buckled up. I looked into my driver's side mirror to make sure the street was clear and must have jumped an inch off my seat. Just for a second, I saw something a short distance behind my car. It looked like the figure of a woman barely visible at the edge of the streetlight's glow. It scared me enough to look away, afraid that it... She would notice me looking at her and, I don't know, come for me? But when I looked back, there was nothing there. No one anywhere near where it had been. I told myself I hadn't seen anything. It was probably the shadow of the light pole. But why wasn't it still in the same place if that was true? I sighed, tried to calm myself down, put the car in drive, and started to drive away. And then my eyes flicked up to the rear view mirror again. There it was. No, there she was. This time, right behind my car, almost pressed against the back windshield, a shadow in the definite outline of a woman. I slammed on the brakes and turned around to see her more clearly for myself. But she was gone. I need to get the hell out of here, I remember saying out loud. After whipping my head around and trying to figure out where she went, I eased off the brake and pulled onto the street, only to slam on the brakes again when the shadowy figure appeared right in front of my car. She had literally materialized in front of me in an instant. That's the only way I can describe it. One moment she wasn't there, and the next moment she was. This time the figure stayed for just a moment longer, long enough for me to take a good look at her. I think she looked at me too. This shadow woman didn't have any visible features behind, beyond her long hair and womanly shape. No face, nothing. 
no eyes, but I swear it felt like she was looking at me. I blinked hard, squeezing my eyes tight and shaking my head. When I opened them again, the street was empty. I didn't stay any longer to find out what would happen next. I sped back towards my apartment. I felt a lot worse when I got back home than I did when I headed out after eating my dinner. Whatever reassuring explanation I'd been looking for, I sure as hell had not found it. I wish I didn't have this story to share. I'm not someone who's ever been into the supernatural or unexplained phenomena. I'm still not into it. (laughs) I hate that I saw that thing, that I felt it touch me. I hadn't come looking for it. I was just doing my job, a job I didn't even want to do. It still bothers me that I can't explain what I saw in a way that doesn't make me sound crazy. Thankfully, I wasn't sent out to that area again, and I found a new job a few months later. What was that thing? Could I have just imagined all of that? I'm pretty sure it was real, especially since I saw it three times. I felt like it was almost following me in a way. I know I was tired that day, but I wasn't so sleep deprived that I would have hallucinated all of that. I read some stuff online about a dead couple and an old woman that supposedly appear near the tunnels. Maybe one of the ghosts of these dead women appeared outside my car, or maybe someone, something else, that lived in that tunnel, something that maybe still lives there. Thoughts? Yee. I uh, was afraid she was going to be in the backseat of his car. <laughs> oh, yeah, when he started to drive away. When you were like, and then he looked in his rearview mirror, and I was like, oh, no, she's going to be in the car. <laughs> she's going to be in there with you. Um, yeah, I mean, it's entirely plausible. Well, it's in my mind, it's plausible that the two things are kind of unrelated. That, like, mm-hmm. yes, there was just coincidentally a dead raccoon in there that did yeah. smell. Yeah. And then it just allowed this person to be in a situation where they could have brought something back with them. Yeah. It could it could be the the dead the one of the three people that hang out spirits. Yeah, the named spirits, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um I I've mean, seen, yeah, it's also just like so sad like the tunnel situation. Oh, I know. I've I have some pictures. Yeah. This first picture is of a man entering one of the tunnels under Caesar's Palace. And you can find articles online that are not about the paranormal, that are just about like the population of people that live down there. There's like entire communities of people where they're not supposed to be living down there. Of course not. They will get like, you know, moved out here and there, but I think the police generally tolerate it there. The only concern is that they don't live too far down in the tunnels because then they don't have time to get out when flash floods happen. So, okay. I need to talk about the flash flood for a second. Yeah. So how do these flash floods happen? Because I feel like in my mind, I'm like, am I just fucking stupid? Because Las Vegas is a massive desert. And that's why it's like, I remember like, uh, you know, I lived in Las Vegas for a couple of years and then a summer in Arizona where there was flash floods too. I remember my dad warning me about this creek bed behind this house they were renting. Yeah. And it was interesting because it was totally bone dry. Yeah. But what happens is because it's the desert and it's dry so much, the ground gets so hard. Yeah. That and then these areas when you have these big thunderstorms and you get a lot of rain over, let's say, like 12 hours or 18 hours. Yeah. Well, the rain doesn't just go into the ground. doesn't get absorbed. Because it's like too hard to mm-hmm. absorb it, if and, you will. And, and there's little mountains outside Las Vegas. Las Vegas is in a big bowl. Yeah, yeah. And so okay. what happens is all that water picks up a lot of speed. It's just basically on concrete. You know, it's like it's like it's just yeah, running just like, down, and then it for, it goes into gullies. The gullies go into bigger ravines. That stuff comes rushing down. So it'll be like a dry bed that'll have nothing one day might have six feet of water in it the next, and Damn. then the day after that, gone again. That's crazy. It just all, and so what what happens is like that water would just pool before they made these tunnels in Las Vegas and would flood like downtown the Strip and stuff. You know, wouldn't flood it for long, uh-huh. but long enough to do a lot of damage. Yeah, yeah. So they made this you know crazy tunnel system to I think the water ends up in Lake Mead now eventually hmm. to divert it there, which is great. 
unless you're in these tunnels. And if you're in one of the big ones, like they said, there's different sizes. Yeah. It's because like the little ones will feed into a little bit bigger ones. The big, those will feed into even bigger ones. Yeah. And so if you're in one of the main ones, when a true flash flood hits, it's like a river all of a sudden in there it underground. It you away. So powerful that if you were down there, no chance you're going to survive No that. chance. Because you can't, it's not like you can like casually swim out of it to a ladder and pull yourself off. I'm, nope. I'm imagining that there's ladders in and out of these tunnels. It's going to push you to some grate or something where the water could pass through, but you can't. Oh God, and you're just like smashed up against it. Yep, or it's just going to, you know, push you, uh, you know, by the time you would reach the surface, it's, it's been too long and you, you know, you can't in that tunnel necessarily stay up on top. It's so turbulent. <sighs> it's a yeah, great recipe to drown quickly. Golly. I know I did make this note of just like, well, before I say this note, as you were talking about, like, you know, and there's like flooding underneath these like elaborate casinos, like, oh, what a what what a bad idea to build giant expensive buildings in the middle of a desert. Yeah, you in a bowl in the desert. Idiots. Uh, and then like, you know, although I, I will say I just recently was reading an article about how Las Vegas mm-hmm. uh, actually you would think it's like such a waster of water, but they've been really trying to get so much smarter. I don't know if the residents yeah, they, there they would say the same it. thing. Yeah, and it's like, you know, they even said that like by shutting down the water features at like the Bellagio or the canal in um, the Venetian, it's like that wasn't the problem. And it Mm. it was really a really fascinating article with different people's perspectives, like somebody who moved there to be an Elvis impersonator. Funny. uh, Somebody who, and and was basically like, yeah, you like, you live in a desert. This is, you know, what it comes with. But then like some other jackass that moved there from the Midwest who was like, I'm going to have a lawn. Lawns are the American dream. It's like, then maybe you don't live in a desert. Mm -hmm. And the golf courses. Yeah. So it was really interesting though. They are really trying to get so smart and they've really done some fascinating things. I can't speak intelligently on it, Mm -hmm. but they've done some really incredible things to help eliminate the water problem. But anyways- I have more pictures too, just so you know. Okay, great. Let's see more pictures. Okay. Uh, Yeah, four more, just so you know. Uh, So this next one is spooky shot of two men in the tunnel uh, somewhere underneath the strip. So how do you get into them exactly? Well, there's some areas where you can just walk on in. There's no like um, covers on all of the entrances. So it's like, like I'll show a picture here in a little bit of the entrance to the Sand Hill Road tunnels. Okay, great. Because I'm so confused. There's a great on that. But on this one, it's just like, okay, like think about in LA, since you lived there for such a long time and you'd see like the LA River. Yeah. And it would go under the freeway. It's just a big open, you know, where the water can flow. Yeah. It's the same thing. There's just like, you would just see like, look down, essentially like a big concrete ditch. Not all of it's underground. The tunnel would like surface where you just see like a... But a tunnel, I think of being enclosed. Having like a top and a bottom. Think about it. No, think about a train tunnel. Think about a train tunnel, like where like like it goes flat on the bottom. Yeah. And and like where the track is. Mm -hmm. And then it's arched on the top. Think more of that than like a pipe. Yeah. I was thinking like underground pipe. Yeah, not pipe. I was thinking Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle type tunnel. No, this could be like can be like rectangular in shape. Some of them, yeah, um, yeah. Well, the, the shape doesn't matter so much as I was just imagining that if they're underneath the city, that it's like you have to go down a ladder to get down, and then no. you're like enclosed in this thing. I was thinking about mm. it having an open top. Yeah, there's just some or, areas where yeah. it's, it's where the water, like you know, uh, I don't know. I don't want to take it. like yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, and this next one, um, uh, entrance to the tunnels on Sand Hill Road. Got so, it. So you can see like the visual there of like, it's like. Um, yeah, so it is enclosed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of like what it's called on the side of the road, like right next to the sidewalk in some areas where like uh, just a little culvert or I don't know. I don't have all the, I don't have all my tunnel and ditch terminology <laughs> <laughs> loaded up and ready to go, but I can picture all this stuff. Uh, and then this next one, a close up of the tunnels. 
Of these, you know, by Sand Hill yep. Road. Ooh, it looks like there's something in there. Mm-hmm. I know in that middle in the back there, like two uh-huh. little dots. Uh-huh. And then just uh, this next one, how creepy the area around the entrance looks at night. Ugh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that, that picture is actually very helpful. I understand now. Yeah, I wish I could like, uh, I have in my brain like so many images of like around LA and different deserty areas mm-hmm. where it's like, um, it would be like, okay, there'd be like an apartment complex and then right behind that apartment complex before the next one, instead of an alley or a road, it would be like a big concrete ditch essentially, mm-hmm. but it's just, but it's flat on the bottom. Yeah. And it's just, it's just a place for the water. And then, and then, you know, at the end of that, that water flowing down there might then go underground. So you're not getting the water pooling in parking lots. I and- love how hung up you are about the shape. You're like, the bottom is flat. I was never worried about the shape of it. I just always imagined that it was like underground. And yeah. so that you would have to, so I, in my mind, I was picturing- like a sewer system. Yeah. And I'm like picturing this, like, I mean, it is still like a very sad thing to think about yeah. people who are uh, living in the worst of conditions, you know, right. it's like mental illness, homelessness, drug addiction. I'm sure that there's like turf wars within it. Like, yeah. like this is like our little community. Totally. There's that little community. I would bet my life it's incredibly unsafe for women. And then on top of all of that, you're worried about flooding yeah. and being haunted by spirits. Totally. totally. Yeah. I, I understand now where where the, your brain was going, where it's like a sewer system is totally enclosed. Yeah. Because it's coming from toilets. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like where the rain's coming yeah, from this everywhere. Yeah, the water is, yeah, accumulating mm-hmm. in other ways. Yeah, and you know what? I was just thinking about too, like, you know what's so different about living here than like living in the Midwest where we, I don't know if we just have like that much more rain, but like on my street growing up, all of our streets were a little bit higher in the middle mm. so that the water would run down. Uh-huh. And then- just like in the movie it it's like there was the sidewalk and there was the curb and bef- from the curb to the road was like i don't know maybe a foot yeah and there were like grates and the grates into the and an system. opening and so the rainwater would run into there so that's like where my brain was like yeah but you have to get down into the tunnel somehow yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah 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 god what a scary i mean scary in a haunted way and then scary as a way to live yeah, it's like and, a double whore. And I read a couple, uh, you know, articles about people that have been living in this uh, system for like 10, 15 years. I mean, I, like kudos have, like, to the cops for just like letting them be. And it's so hot in Vegas. I guess that's like the best option mm-hmm, to yes. be homeless in terms of like protection from the elements. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Uh, you ready to get away from tunnels and move on to a poltergeist story? Yeah, I'm like very depressed by this story. Before we revisit some territory Ed and Lorraine Warren and several others once wrote about, it's time for our mid-show sponsor break. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. 
Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Thanks for listening to our sponsor deals, Creeps and Peepers. Okay, a little bit of setup on this one before jumping into the spoopy stuff. I'm going to do my best here. I have a canker sore that I got from a soda, right? And it is like peaking right now. Oh, no. And, and so my body keeps like creating so much saliva. It doesn't sound bad. You're okay. <laughs> okay, good. But I'm I know that really feeling. having to focus to pronunciate. Uh, the Goodens were a normal family living in a normal neighborhood of the historic New England port city of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Gerard Jerry Gooden and his wife, Laura, purchased their house on Lindley Street in 1960. By the early 70s, when things in their home stopped being anything close to normal, their house was about 50 years old. It was originally built for the child of a Bridgeport shirt manufacturer, a small one-story house with a basement in a working-class neighborhood, two bedrooms, one bathroom, 738 square feet, built in 1923. A woman who had lived in the neighborhood for 40 years when the Goodens started to share their story of paranormal terror told a reporter for the Bridgeport Post, now called the Connecticut Post, that there were never any claims of strange happenings in the house or even in the rest of the neighborhood prior to what the Goodwin, Goodens reported. I'm going to constantly want to add a W to their name, Goodwin instead of Gooden. Uh, just a few years before everything changed in their home, Jerry and Laura, Laura experienced a tragic death in the family. While sources don't try to connect the death to the later haunting, I do wonder if they are related. Their son, Gerard Jr., died in 1967 when he was just six years old. He'd been diagnosed with cerebral palsy when he was only six months. After a trip to St. Anne's Shrine in Sturbridge, Sturbridge, Massachusetts, Gerard Jr. caught for what most people would just be a common cold. But for him, it was deadly. His condition quickly worsened, and then he passed away on September 27th. Less than three years later, in late 1970, Jerry and Laura adopted a little girl from Canada, Marcia, who was also six years old. Same age Gerard Jr. was when he prematurely passed away. And Marcia, on top of leaving literally everyone she'd ever known to move to a new country and calls two strangers, mom and dad, also had to immediately deal with paranormal terror. Shortly after she moved into the Gooden home, Marcia, Jerry, and Laura all began experiencing strange and unexplainable things. Is it possible, I wonder, that Gerard Jr.'s ghost stayed behind and didn't care for his new sister? Was he angry that it looked as if he had been, in a, in a sense, replaced? Time now for the tale of the Lindley Street Poltergeist. It all started in 1971. That was when the Goodyear, Goodens first began hearing tapping, banging, and pounding noises on the walls of their house. The noises had a pattern to them, a rhythmic building of sorts. And this pattern played out over and over, occurring sporadically at all hours of the day. Jerry later said in an interview with the local news station, WNAB, the noises would begin as a tapping and then go into an awful bang. Jerry quickly noticed that these noises primarily followed Laura from room to room, even when she was home alone. At first, Jerry suspected that some neighbors of his were playing a prank on his family since the noises first occurred in the weeks leading up to Halloween. And then when they stopped about six weeks later, right when the very neighbors he suspected moved away, he was convinced they'd been behind it. Problem solved. But then months later, the family began to again experience more unusual and hard-to-explain phenomena. And now those old neighbors no longer lived anywhere near them. According to Police Lieutenant Leonard Coco, officers started receiving new disturbance reports in the house in early 1972. Jerry said they'd been hearing noises night after night that sounded like stones being thrown at the walls and roof of their home. But still, the Goodens did not attribute these new noises to any supernatural causes. They didn't yet believe in the paranormal and felt there had to be a logical explanation. They suspected that someone new was now harassing them. 
Jerry later told the Bridgeport Post that at the time the noises occurred, there was a proposal to build a 50-family condominium near Lindley Street, and he felt like the developers or their employees were causing these noises, trying to harass them out of the neighborhood. But then, what happened inside the Gooden home in November of 1974 couldn't be explained away by pranks to her neighbors or shady developers. After returning from a brief vacation on Sunday, November 24th, the Goodens found their home in a state of total disrepair. The Bridgeport Telegram, later absorbed by the Connecticut Post, published a story about local police and firefighters entering the Gooden home on Lindley Street, where reporters claimed that they actually saw for themselves unusual occurrences, such as moving furniture. They said they watched now 10-year-old Marcia, who had quit going to school over being bullied and now studied at home, being slammed against a wall by an invisible force perhaps slammed by the furious spirit of a brother she had never met? The story of the haunting made international news, and soon thousands of people were driving by to see the house for themselves, hoping to catch a glimpse of the paranormal. Some even knocked on the front door of the Goodens, trying to talk them into letting them explore their home, as if they were a paranormal museum and were just employees and not a family being terrorized in their own house. Author William J. Hall ended up writing a book about the haunting, titled The World's Most Haunted House. Hall was a skeptic until he read the original newspaper articles and listened to interviews with a variety of first responders. Hall read uh, read accounts of over 100 eyewitnesses to this haunting. He also examined the investigation of the Lindley Street poltergeist written about by the world's most infamous demonologist, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who once investigated. They would call the Bridgeport poltergeist one of the most famous, well-documented poltergeist cases in history. On November 25, 1974, the Bridgeport Telegram reported... Police and fire authorities are stunned today and unable to determine the reasons for what have been termed unusual occurrences all day Sunday in a small four-room house at 966 Lindley Street, occupied by Mr. and Mrs. Jerry Gooden and their 10-year-old daughter. Furniture moved on its own, dishes rattled, the TV turned over, and reports uh, reporters watched helplessly as Marcia was picked up and slammed against a wall by an unseen force while sitting in a chair. The police even witnessed a kitchen table and chairs flip over and a crucifix fall onto the floor and break into pieces. A TV set in Marsh's room was seen throwing itself off the shelf. Her bureau slammed itself down onto the floor. Easy chairs in the living room moved by themselves. Jerry told the Bridgeport Post, Things were flying around in the front room when we went in there. Chairs were toppled over and everything else. Now, not only did the family believe their home was host to the paranormal, they were scared. They felt threatened. After a night particularly full of disturbances, the family left their home to call the police from a neighbor's house. When law enforcement arrived, uh, Jerry told patrol officer Hallsworth, We need help. Something evil is wrecking our house. Hallsworth went into the house and saw that the living room appeared normal, but the kitchen was a wreck. Tables and chairs moved out of place and dishes were broken. Then, while he was the only human being in the kitchen, at least the only living one, he witnessed the family's large, heavy fridge start to rock by itself back and forth. Soon after that, Laura saw the TV set in the living room rotate around approximately 35 degrees on its own. Officer Hallsworth moved the TV back into place, then saw it turn itself back around once more. He also witnessed three reclining chairs all suddenly start shaking. He searched the house for any sort of explanation for these events, even checked the cellar but found nothing. What could have explained what he directly witnessed, except the paranormal? Hallsworth called in more officers to try and determine what was happening. Joseph Tomic, uh, Leroy Lawson, Carl Leonzel, and George Wilson all responded to the call. And that same night, all five officers witnessed a lamp next to the TV start to shake when it was obvious no one was touching it. 
all agreed something truly strange was going on, something completely outside of their area of expertise. Officer Tomic later responded uh, to accusations from reporters that he and and the other officers had been conditioned to see what they said they saw. The reporters alleged that their minds had tricked them. They'd imagined it all thanks to the power of suggestion. They were told they were going into a haunted house, so they saw paranormal events. Tomic refuted that by telling a reporter for the Bridgeport Post, when we got the call to go to 966 Lindley Street, in no way did they tell us that we were going to a haunted house. When we got there, we thought we were investigating a burglary, the way it was all messed up. Only later did they tell us what happened. When we, What we saw there was totally unexpected, and some of the policemen were really frightened. I was told I would see a lot of things in the police force, but I never expected to see what I saw in that house. Members of the local fire department would also be called over, and Deputy Fire Chief Frederick Zwerlin quickly became a believer. He said he saw a chair jump up and fall backwards, saying it jumped up several inches. How was this possible? The foundation of the house was inspected, seemed to be in good condition. Uh, The fire chief was unable to determine what could be causing the unusual occurrences other than paranormal forces. Word of what happened spread through town. Now even larger groups of people were coming to the house on a daily basis. The Bridgeport Telegram would report, Early this morning, the crowds of curious onlookers became so big that the roadway was blocked, making it necessary to send four radio car policemen to the spot to clear the area. News of all this, of course, had already reached the Warrens, who lived only a few miles away. Ed came to the house to investigate, and the first time he walked out of the home, he presented a broken crucifix to curious onlookers. Ed Warren later told the Bridgeport Telegram, things were happening periodically throughout the day inside the house. The Warrens wrote about their investigation in their book, Ghost Hunters. Ed said he first learned about Lindley Street from his friend Sue, who was keeping tabs on the case. She reported that police, uh, priests, reporters were all seeing manifestations of poltergeists at the house, and the story was getting lots of news coverage. She told uh, you know, Ed he should go check things out. Ed immediately saw a tremendous amount of activity, saying, Well, every few minutes something would get tipped over, or knocked over, or torn from the wall. This had been going on for some time so you can imagine what the place looked like. Ten-year-old Marcia seemed to keep experiencing the worst of the activity. She continued to be pushed around and thrown by whatever was in the Gooden home. WNAR reporter Tim Quinn said he witnessed the girl being slammed into a wall, quote, like someone had a rope on her and pulled her into the wall. Not the first outside the family eyewitness to watch Marcia being roughed up by something no one could see. A theology student named Paul came to pray with the family. The Goodens were making efforts to get permission to have exorcism rites performed by the Catholic Church. Ed Warren urged the church to act as well, telling the Bridgeport Telegraph, We have a malevolent force here, a demon of some sort. Bishop Walter W. Curtis was told about the activity at the house and referred the matter to Reverend Edward Doyle of St. Patrick's Church, and Father Doyle performed a standard blessing. While in the home, he didn't see anything unusual, but soon after he left, the paranormal activity resumed. Like we've seen so many other times here with poltergeist activity, the entity oppressing the Gooden home seemed intelligent, knowing when to terrorize the family and when not to. Jerry Gooden tried to explain the presence he'd been sensing for years now in his house, saying there's a heavy feeling, a pressure like needles all over me. He added that he also sometimes smelled sulfur or ozone before objects moved on their own and that the temperature in the room often dropped to go along with these events. The Warrens came to believe that the family was experiencing demonic oppression, Ed said the Goodens were chosen by a cunning, malevolent force because they were religious people. But then towards the end of 1974, the paranormal events inside the home began to fade. But right when the Goodens 
began to hope it was maybe all going to be over and like a bad dream, they could put it behind them. Whatever was still going, whatever was still inside their home made its presence known again. Laura Gooden called the police on December 11th at 9 a.m. and reported that more happenings were occurring. She'd watched a stereo set, sewing machine, and TV all be tipped over and a bureau move away from the wall. The air felt cold and electrically charged while this happened, and once more she didn't feel safe in her home. At her and Jerry's urging four days later, on December 18, 1974, Boyce Beatty, chairman of the Central Connecticut chapter of the Spiritual Frontiers Fellowship, a group that explored new frontiers of knowledge, started an investigation of this haunting, and his study would last several weeks. During that time, Beatty and his team conducted psychological testing on Jerry and Laura, including personality tests, an anxiety scale, an interpersonal checklist, and a psi attitude questionnaire. Uh, the researchers created criteria for what they considered genuine phenomena. As written by author William Hall, the events had to occur in the full view of witnesses, uh, with other possible causes eliminated. Boyce Beatty's preliminary evaluation was published later in Hall's book, and Beatty wrote, We noted a pattern of events occurring at those times when there was a psychological change introduced into the home, especially by people arriving or leaving a room of the house. Our preliminary analysis, or room or the house, our preliminary analysis shows that the vast majority of the events occurred while both Miss Gooden and the child were in the house. The data does indicate that the focus of the poltergeist activity is the child. But it seems to indicate also that the mother appears to be involved also, perhaps as a secondary poltergeist agent, or as one whose presence supplies the requisite conditions for triggering paranormal psychokinetic activity. And it calls to mind one of the witnesses' description of the events. The mother and daughter are like a stone and a piece of flint. From the investigation and analysis of the data to date, it seems quite obvious that this is a genuine poltergeist case and that genuine psychokinetic activity or effects, excuse me, have occurred. Following the conclusion of the investigation, still unable to get the Catholic Church to authorize an official exorcism of the house, in January of 1975, the Goodens put their home up for sale. George Brown, owner of the firm that listed the house, said they received calls from several interested persons and that Jerry and Laura were ready to move away from Bridgeport, but none of the offers were for a price that would allow them to move into a new home. By 1976, when they realized they weren't going to be able to sell the home for what they wanted or needed, the Goodens repainted and removed some identifiable swan planters that kept, they kept out front to at least make it harder for ghost hunters and other paranormal enthusiasts to keep finding their home. And they suddenly stopped giving interviews. If they couldn't get the help they needed, at least they could withdraw and reduce the amount of onlookers that made them feel like they were animals on display in a zoo. They unlisted their telephone number and tried to return to a normal life. Marcia even went back to school. At school, she wouldn't talk about what, uh, you know, what did or did not happen, what might still be happening. Uh, the Goodens were done talking. William Hall wrote that almost a decade later, around 1983, one of Marcia's former classmates saw her working as a cashier at a convenience store. She'd be around 19 at this point. When her classmate brought up the Lindley Street house, Marcia immediately seemed terrified said, I don't know what you're talking about, and made it clear through her body language and demeanor that the subject was closed. While Marcia moved out immediately after graduating from high school, Jerry and Laura would continue living in that house on Lindley Street for the rest of their lives. On June 11, 1993, Laura Gooden died in a car crash at the age of 68. Jerry died of natural causes September 24, 1997, at the age of 78. Curiously, neither of their obituaries mentioned their adopted daughter, Marcia. A Christmas card might explain why. 
For several years following the paranormal activity that over a hundred different people witnessed in their home, the Goodens sent out the, an, an annual Christmas card to many people, including investigator Boyce Beatty. And one card dated uh, December 9th, 1980 stated, hope you have a nice holiday. Well, when our daughter reaches 18, she informed us she's going to find her own parents in Canada. We are very upset about it. She told us we're not good enough for her. Well, there isn't anything we can do but pray. She changes her mind. Please pray for us. Was wanting to find her biological parents the only reason Marcia left, or was something paranormal still occurring in the Gooden home? Could the spirit of their first child, Gerard Jr., have been driving Marcia out, driving a wedge in between her and his parents? Was demonic oppression what afflicted the Gooden home with poltergeist activity, or a child's confused jealousy being expressed from beyond the grave? Author William Hall hired a private investigator to look for Marcia when he began working on his book about all this, and he determined that she was most likely back in Canada where a family friend reported she was alive and well. Alive and well and possessing zero interest in rehashing the paranormal events of her childhood with Hall or anyone else. What else happened in that home that she so badly seems to want to forget? Even if she does to des uh, decide to talk someday, will we really understand what truly went on in her childhood home or will we just have to keep doing what we do with almost all of these stories here? Just keep wondering continuing to ponder the many great paranormal mysteries of the universe. I mean, I bet she's just mad at them for not moving. Mm, maybe. Like, how could you not be? I understand, like, the financial right. constraints that right. they had. But also, if she, if we, throughout that story, what we hear is that Marsha is consistently the one that is receiving the brunt of it. Mm -hmm. As a parent, it's your job to protect your child. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like she didn't want to be adopted in the first place. I don't know what the circumstances I know. I were. wonder about that too. So it's like, if it, who knows what presented this family with the opportunity to adopt Marsha, uh, but yeah. she was probably just counting down the days between like, I just want to go back to my family. I just want to go back to Canada mm -hmm. on top of, yeah, I'm living in the, like, who who knows also like, was she always living in the shadow of their deceased child? Yeah. Not even in a paranormal sense. Right. Just, you know, like you, you just can't live up to the expectation of what they would have wanted for their biological child. And, and there were some additional details that oh. I didn't include in the story to add to the tension. Yeah. She was, um, and I'm blanking on what it's called now without having it written down. I think it's First Nations, but it's like um, Canada's term for indigenous people that, you know, were in Canada when the, you know, colonizers came over. Yeah. Well, Marsha was indigenous. Uh-huh. And that uh, when she moved over to Connecticut, not only was she leaving a new country, it sounded like she had grown up on, a, uh, you know, whatever Canada calls a reservation. Okay. And she was heavily bullied at school as well. So there was like a lot of shit going on at home and at school. Life was not going well. Yeah. And so, which could add to what you're saying about like, um, you know, being mad at them for not like, why did you put me here? Why wouldn't you move when things are going crazy? And I do find it so weird. Could be a coincidence, but your six-year-old dies and then you adopt a six-year-old. That's what I was thinking too. And I'm like, like, what kind I'm of psychological pressure were they putting on her? That's what I was getting at. Yeah. Is it's just like, you're living in the shadow of this deceased child. Yeah. Uh, because I know that there are plenty of sad situations where a family has multiple children and a children pa and a child passes yeah. away for whatever reason, whatever the circumstances are. And then the rest of the children are trying to fulfill the needs of the parents because it's like, you know, well, we want, we want to help you feel better about losing this child. And yeah. so there's just like all this pressure on the rest of the family, not saying that it happens every time, but it happens so often because you're just so stricken with grief. You can't mm -hmm. even oftentimes see what you're doing. That's so damaging to everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then like if she's adopted by white parents and and she's mm-hmm. not she's not white and there could have yeah. just been what so many. What effort did they make to understand her culturally? You know, yeah, like, like also like what adoption agency did they go through? Or was this more of like an orphanage situation? I, I have so many like so many, questions, yeah, but questions. this poor girl, no matter what, is yeah. taken from all that she knows in terms of her ethnicity and, uh-huh. and her uh like her cultural beliefs and then move to this other place. It just doesn't sound like she ever wanted to be there. Then she's bullied in both the living world and the paranormal world. And then it doesn't sound like anyone's doing anything to protect her. Yeah. Poltergeist stories especially fascinate me. Yeah, me too. Because they almost always involve children. I know, I know. And, and, and there's all, a reason why, right? Well, they speculated. That there's yes. a reason that there, there's some kind of turmoil and it's generally like prepubescent, but like That's close right. to puberty, pubescent or post pubescent, but like there's like a little range there. It tends to be yeah. between like eight or nine and 15 and 16 years old. Oh, come on, Monroe turned 17 already. <laughs> and, and, and it's, uh, the the energy is almost always I can't, I can't think of an exception but there probably is one yeah. focused on one child mm-hmm. and who is experiencing like a lot of emotional turbulence in their life like yeah. it's uh you know there's a lot of like stuff going on and They're just, l- let's uh, say it's not ghosts I'm like well that is equally fascinating to me that it could be like that you could because of your emotional um angst or or whatever's going on inside of you yeah make shit fly around the room because then that's like superhero stuff. That's like what telekinesis when you can like move things with your mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether it's ghosts or whether it's something like telekinesis or a little bit of both, anything a- a- out there in the paranormal that is just not like something we scientifically understand mm-hmm. is very intriguing to me. Like I-, I hope you know someday we find that out. But there's so many poltergeist stories that follow that. You know, ha- have the uh, a lot of the same components. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have pictures for us? Oh, yes. I have uh, four pictures. Great. So this first one, recent image of 966 Lindley Street. Uh, just a little house in Bridgeport, Connecticut. It's the tiniest little baby house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to say it's less than 1,000 square feet. Yeah, maybe. 738 square feet. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then this uh, this is how the home looked during the alleged haunting in the mid-70s. So you can see the little like swan uh, thing oh, on the porch. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know if it's 738 square feet. I just know it was 700 and something. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then this next one, terribly grainy photo. But this is an old newspaper photo of a large crowd gathered in front of the supposedly haunted home. It, it, I mean, you can see how many people are out there. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, you can't really find photos of the, well, I can't find any photos of the good ones. So it seems like they managed to keep, you know, photos Not of the themselves. Not the good ones. What is it? The good old? Goodens. Goodens. I know. Goodens. I've never heard Gooden. I've heard Goodwin a million times or Godwin. Oh, yeah. So my brain is like. Uh, yeah. And that's for sure their name. That's not like a cover name or something to hide their identity. Um, it was the name written in like by the the Warrens uh, and also written in Hall's book and stuff. So I yeah. think it's their name. And then and then just for fun, one more picture. This isn't I was looking up uh I wanted to find a good picture of Ed and Lorraine Warren, but we've shown pictures of them before. Yeah. I came across this photo, uh, the doll of shadows or the shadow doll. What the fuck is that? No shit. Oh my God. It's in Ed and Lorraine's, you know, now closed, like, you know, their museum, like the Warren's Museum. It's a, this supposedly haunted doll. How fucking creepy is this? I'm not looking at it. That thing is terrifying. That doll is supposedly capable of visiting you in your dreams to haunt oh, I you. I bet it is. And possessing the ability to scare you so badly in your sleep, it can stop your heart. Oh, isn't there the a- doll of shadows. There's a- is it Korean or uh, I know Thai? what you're thinking of. No, it's not. It's, um, um, oh my God. Now? Oh, Sivu was a guy. Uh, no, Sivu was a guy I worked with. Mung. Mung. There was an entity in the Mung community. I was kind of close. Mm-hmm, that uh, would like kill people. I mean, they think. I think they were worried it would kill people in their sleep. And what did it kill mostly men? 
I can't remember that detail. Yeah, man, man. Ay, ay, ay. But I, uh, that I th- doll was terrifying. I know. I, w- I want to tell a, a story about that doll for next week's 200th episode. Oh. So a little, little teaser. Or maybe hold on to it for summer camp. Maybe. Because that thing is creepy. Fucking creepy. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Listen, I know some of you might be at summer camp. Some of you might not be. But wouldn't this be really fun to do? You do a story about something really creepy like that. Mm-hmm. And then the meat. Why are you smashing Layla in that book? Oh yeah. I need to get something else to have my bookmarker. I, I keep forgetting to get a big bookmarker in here. Anyway. We have huge bookmarks in our store. Yep. I just don't think of it. Um, But to like have like a, a story about a doll. And yeah. then we could just have like Logan make a replicate, a replicate of that <laughs> Hide it around the... Hide it around camp. Ah, that's great. Yeah, that'd be so fun. Mm-hmm. Oh, you heard it here. So if you come to camp and you find a creepy doll, it may or may not be from us. We don't know. <laughs> oh, well, I also have little kid stories too. Like you have like the... Yeah. the boy and girl. Boy and girl, yeah. Ah, oh, thematic. Are you done smashing, Layla? I am. Be I'll nice, squish sir. her. I'll squish her now. Be nice, sir. All right. Well, so let's start first with the girl in the basement. Okay. I've always been immensely interested in the paranormal and the afterlife. I feel there is no greater question in a person's life than do your memories and consciousness continue on after you've said goodbye to your physical vessel? When someone isn't fascinated by the paranormal Hmm. or is uninterested in the what happens after we die question, I usually judge them as uninteresting and a boring idiot. Boom. Nailed it. (laughs) With that said, here's my ghost story. In 2000, uh, in 2021, my wife and I, in 2,201, in in 2021, my (laughs) wife and I bought our first home in a small Wisconsin town where we fell in love with our dream house. An almost 120-year-old beautiful home with tall ceilings and beautiful original wood. As with any home that is that old that has had prior families live in it for over a century, there's plenty of work to do to make it your own. Between dozens of gallons of paint and just as many bottles of wine, it did finally start to feel like the home was ours. Also, with any home that old, the question that to me seems valid is, are there any ghosts here? The answer to that question was quickly answered. The young spirit who also calls our home home has concerned me, has concerned, has me concerned with what happened to her and curious as to why she remains. After a few weeks of living in our new home and taking care of various updates, my father and I had started the project of cutting, painting, and installing baseboards throughout the entire first floor and in various other parts of the house. Next to our kitchen is the mudroom and the side entrance to the house. I was carrying baseboards outside through the mudroom and into the kitchen to be cut. In between the mudroom and the kitchen is a door which leads to a staircase that goes into our basement. All the best ghost stories involve the basement, right? (laughs) Well, as I was carrying a board between the mudroom and the kitchen, I glanced out of my peripheral vision towards the open basement door. In that glance, I saw at the bottom of the basement stairs a little girl with her back turned to me. As soon as I looked at her, she quickly darted around the corner. Before she was out of view, I noticed she had long blonde hair, was wearing a dress and a small white jacket. She appeared to be a similar age to my eldest daughter, who was at the time six years old. Not thinking at the time it was anything paranormal, I yelled, get out of the basement. (laughs) We had various tools down there and she could get hurt if she wasn't careful. I paused to wait for her to come back upstairs. What was that, daddy? I heard from the living room. Whoa. My daughter was in the living room watching TV. Obviously, that made what just happened stand (sighs) out significantly. My father returned to the kitchen to continue our project. I told him what I had just seen. 
He's a dec- he's seen a decent amount of paranormal stuff in his life, so he was receptive. Well, it is an old house, but if there's something here, it doesn't feel negative to me. This being the first time anything had happened in our new home, I placed it in my mental Rolodex and continued our baseboard project. Two weeks later, I invited an old friend over for drinks to catch up. He was a local, and us being new to the area, it was exciting to have his wife and two of his children over as guests. The first child was a, the first child was a girl in her teens, and the second a young boy about six or seven. As our kids played together, his wife and mine sat in our living room chatting while he and I were in the kitchen sneaking too much wine and laughing about old stories. Nothing of note seemed to happen this day from my perspective, but in the next few days, I would come to find out that my perspective was very different from that of my wife and daughters. A few days after the visit, I was on our porch chatting with my wife when she started telling me about weird things she'd noticed happening in our house. She told me that one night while she was sleeping, she'd heard a little girl's voice say, Mommy, outside our bedroom door very late at night. When she woke up and went to check on our eldest daughter to see what she needed, she found her fast asleep. Obviously, that was very interesting to me based on what I had seen at the bottom of the stairs. I asked if anything else had happened. She paused and then her eyes lit up. Actually, did I tell you about the little girl our daughter was looking for when your friends were here? No, I said. And then she shared this story. The weekend that my friend and his family had come over, our daughter came to her and asked, Mommy, Mommy, where did the little girl go? My wife was more interested in conversation and wine with her new friend, so she brushed off the question and casually said, I don't know, why don't you go look for her? And went back to having her own fun. A few moments later, our daughter was back with a more concerned look on her face. Mommy, I can't find her anywhere, our daughter said. The wives exchanged glances. Do you know where your little girl is? Our daughter can't find her anywhere, my wife asked of her new friend. Oh, we didn't bring our youngest daughter with us today, she said. My wife turned back to our daughter. Where did you see her last? She was in my room. She didn't say anything. She just looked at my toys and looked at me, and then she left, our daughter replied. My wife asked, what did she look like? She was little, like me. She had hair blonde like mine and was wearing a white jacket. My mind was blown. The only person I shared my little girl in the white jacket story with was my father. I then told my wife what I had seen a few weeks ago, and like all you podcasters love to say, (laughs) full body chills. Wow. Interesting, huh? Yeah, really. Like With with all the different witnesses. Uh With his wife, himself, his daughter, Uh and father-in-law. Well, no. His father. Well, I guess his father didn't see it. Yeah. But he knew about it. Right. But how? Like, okay. Just think about it from this. And the point. father-in-law didn't see it. The father-in-law was just open to the paranormal. Again, not the father-in-law. Oh, father. I can't, I can't, I, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. The father. Yeah, his dad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay, but like, just think about this. Uh, imagine our kids are back in their younger days, and our friends Brooke and Steve come over, yeah. and they have two kids, and we think that they have brought both of their children with them. Right, right, right. And Monroe's like, "Where did Paige go?" Yeah. And Paige was never there. I know. That, that is, is fucking creepy. That is full body chills. We don't say that on this show, but I know that's a popular podcast. It's like, it is a popular podcast and should, a good phrase. We should, we, exactly. We should incorporate that because that is full body chills. It is full body chills, but it's also their thing. So like, <laughs> let's not be thieves. Oh, wait, who, what pod, is it associated with a certain podcast? It's literally a podcast. Oh, the podcast is called Full, full body, body Chills? Full Body Chills. It's a great podcast. Oh, I didn't. I wasn't thinking. I think. Oh. I think. I think it's a thing, though, that a lot of yes, different podcasts. Yes, it is. But it is. It is also a podcast. I'm with you now. I doubt they coined it, though. I, I bet they. I should. think they did. No, I think they trademarked. <laughs> you, you can't actually. You can't say it now. If we, we have to add up all the money we owe them for uh-huh. saying it over and over. 
Oh, Should we just bleep it over and over again? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, be, that, that'd actually be a funny social media clip. Like, <laughs> full, full, uh, but yeah, that's crazy, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like so many witnesses. One feels very real. Uh huh. Yeah, but they don't seem scared. Mm-mm. You know, just like I did love the dad's reaction. He's like, "Well, it's an old house." Yeah. But doesn't feel doesn't bad. Feel negative. Yeah. 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 I thought that they had a fairly calm approach to it. Okay, you want to hear about the little boy? I do. You doing okay over there? Yeah, good. Okay. I thought I saw you futzing around with something. I'm just a little uh, fuzzy. Oh, okay. Just making sure you weren't pushing ghosts away or anything. <laughs> like, come back later, ghost. Hello, Lord and Lady of the creepy crawlies and things that go bump in the night. For a little side note, I grew up in a religious upbringing knowing that there are spirits and demons frolicking around this world. I tell you this in order for other things in this story to make sense. The home I grew up in sat vacant for years before my parents bought it. When we moved in, the realtor informed us that there had been a death in the home. Although it had been many years prior, it was still something that they had had to disclose. When I asked my parents about it, they didn't go into detail as I was young and they didn't want to scare me with that kind of information. After we moved in and I started hanging out with the local neighborhood kids, they asked me which house was mine in the neighborhood. When I told them, they stared at me as if I told them the location of the missing city of Atlantis. I asked them what the big deal was about my house. They said it was haunted and that they used to break into that house and dare each other to sit Mm -hmm. in the upstairs bathroom at night for as long as they could as that is where the accident happened. They asked if I had seen anything or felt anything. I rolled my eyes told them no, and shrugged it off. They told me that I was very brave and very cool for living there, like I had a choice. I was 10. The main bedroom and bathroom were off the dining room in a separate hallway. My bedroom was the first room in this hallway, then the bathroom, across from the bathroom a closet, and then my parents' room at the end of the hall. From my room, I could see directly down the hallway. When it was time for bed, my mother would come in and kiss me goodnight. Then my dad would come in to make sure I was tucked in tight. We would do our goodnight handshake that we made up, say our prayers, and he'd tell me goodnight. He would leave the bathroom light on and close the door so just a crack of light would peek out of the bathroom. I had a thing about sleeping in complete darkness. I watched him walk into his room and close the door, leaving it open just a crack, my version of a safety blanket. I fell asleep moments later listening to my parents' muffled footsteps across the floor. Hours must have passed when I was awoken by the sound of a door creaking on its old hinges. Assuming it was one of my parents that had woken up to use the restroom in the night, I opened one eye and kept the other closed, so if they were to look in on me, it would look like I was still sleeping. The bathroom door closed, and a moment later, the light came back into the hallway. However, this time, the bathroom door wasn't cracked. It was wide open, allowing all of the light to beam directly into my room, right into my face. I waited a few seconds to see if either of my parents was going to close the door. What was taking them so long to do it? I didn't want to get up and do it. I was really comfortable in bed. I opened both eyes, raised my head from the pillow to see which parent had forgotten to close the door and asked them ever so sweetly to close the door to just a crack. However, to my surprise, neither parent was there and their bedroom door was still closed. I didn't think anything of it. Figured I just missed them. I waited a second before I pulled the sheets back to get up. And that's when I saw him, a little boy coming out of the shadows from the opposite end of the hallway and walking towards the bathroom. I laid ever so slowly back down, put my head on the pillow, again, closing just one eye, keeping the other open. He continued down the hallway and stopped in front of my bedroom door. I watched him stand there and stare at me. 
He hesitated at the door, as if he was contemplating whether or not to come in. I could see him clearly, short, shaggy hair, and sad eyes. It looked like his hair was wet and dripping onto his naked shoulders. I couldn't see his whole body, but the light from the bathroom magnified his shoulder, and I am sure he was wet. I watched him for a few more moments and started to become disturbed by his presence. I closed my eyes, tucked my head, and hoping, hoping he would go away, and that maybe I was just dreaming. I laid there waiting for him to go away. Even though my head was tucked and all I could see was my blanket, I could still sense he was there. I finally fell asleep, and when I woke the next morning, rolling over, I faced my bedroom door again and remembered all too clearly the little boy who had stood in the doorway the night before. I shook my head to clear the image. I went to grab my blankets and throw them off of me, but I stopped when I saw that my blankets had been perfectly folded over and the pillow next to me had been propped up as if someone had been sitting next to me in bed. I stared at it confused. As I was processing the night before and the current status of my bed, my mom came into my room. She saw how my bed was and asked me what it was I was up to. I told her and that it was like that when I woke up. She looked at me intrigued and then said that maybe it was my guardian angel keeping watch over me as I slept. I told her that would be better than what I had seen the night before. When she asked what I meant, I proceeded to tell her about the little boy. She pondered what I said and then said a prayer over me. My mom had discussed with my dad what I shared, and before that bedtime that night, they went through the upstairs and, bless and blessed each room, put prayer oil above each door frame, and burned sage throughout the bedrooms. I never saw him after that. However, on occasion, I would hear the door creak open, but no one would be there. Many years later, when I was a teenager, I moved down into the bedroom in our basement after my brother moved out. By this point, I had forgotten about the little boy and the blankets being turned down. I was asleep peacefully, mind you, mm -hmm. when I was woken up by a slowly increasing pressure on my foot. Usually I'm a pretty hard sleeper, but if I feel something touching me, I wake up rather easily, and this would be one of those times. The pressure on my foot was pinching, but not painful, but just like when someone grabs your toes and squeezes. I moved my foot and dozed back to sleep. A few seconds later, I felt the squeeze again. A few times, actually. And after moving my foot numerous times to avoid it being touched, I finally fully woke up. I rolled over onto my back and stared at the ceiling. I enjoyed my sleep and hated being woken up if I didn't need to be. Still do, actually. Pulling my leg up so my foot was no longer at the end of the bed, I looked down towards the footboard to see what was causing this squeeze, thinking maybe my foot was caught in the blankets or in between the mattress and the footboard. I am tall, and beds with footboards resulted in a problem with my feet. But to my surprise, a little boy stood at the end of my bed, his hands resting on the footboard, a grin on his face. My eyes grew wide as we stared at each other. He reached down to my foot to squeeze it again, and I shook my head. His grin died, and his face went sad. He reached for me again, and not knowing exactly why, I spoke to him. Hey, what are you doing down there, little man? <laughs> he stopped reaching for me and smiled again. His hands rested on the footboard, and he stared at me. I looked at him and smiled, only caring that I got to go back to sleep. I was a teenager and sleeping is what I did. I looked at him and he smiled and I said, it's bedtime now, not playtime. It's okay. You're safe here. Now go to sleep. He smiled, lifted his hands from the footboard, took a few steps back, and he continued smiling at me as he completely disappeared. I looked at the spot where he had been and smiled and said, you're welcome, rolled over and went back to sleep. When I woke up the next morning, I told my parents about my little guest. Ha, huh, forgot about that, my dad said. 
What was that whole story about that kid anyway? I know there was a death, but what happened to him? I asked. Oh yeah, the family that lived in the house years before we bought it had two sons, one about five or six and the other 13. The older brother was in charge of watching his younger brother as the parents went out for the evening. While giving him a bath, the phone rang and he went to answer it. While he was away, the younger brother was left playing in the tub. Apparently, he slipped and fell, cracking his head on the tub, knocked himself out, and slid under the water. The older brother, being of the slower mind, had finished with the phone call but had become distracted by something and didn't return to his brother right away. By the time he got back to the bathroom, the younger brother had drowned. Oof. Damn, that all makes sense, though. Why is that? Well, when we first moved in, the kids in the neighborhood told me that they used to dare each other to hang out in the bathroom to see who was the tougher or braver kid. Seriously? My mom asked. Yep. And that's where I first saw him was in front of my door and he looked wet. Yeah, saw him in the hallway once as well, my dad said. That's why we blessed the house. He didn't need to be here anymore. Guess he's lost or he didn't want to leave the house completely, but I think he's gone now. I told him it was okay to go and to go to sleep. My parents nodded in agreement, and that was the last I ever did see of the little boy. I have had my encounters with other bumps in the night, but the boy was finally at rest. As a side note, I don't think my brother ever did see the boy. He never mentioned it when we talked about it years later. My mom has told me that my father and I have the discernment or prolific ability to feel evil or to see other things. She never saw him, but never doubted for a second when I told her about him. Keep doing what you're doing and always keep it wild, cool, and interesting. <laughs> you're caught up and forever listener, Maggie. Thanks, Maggie. Yee, that's a good one. I know, sad. I know it is sad. You know, like, the man, the, I, know I was thinking about that combination where if this family has, you know, had two sons. Oh, my God. And then what a double whammy where not only have you lost one of your children, but then the other child is like, you can't help but have emotional reactions to that and be mad at them in a sense and just carry like they're a reminder of like you were supposed to be watching them. I know that's not healthy probably, but it's like, but we're, we're only human. Yeah. And it's like just to have those occasional thoughts of like, if you just would have fucking paid more attention, he'd still be with us. And then like that kid probably is painfully aware of that yeah. and has their own guilt. I mean, that would just, man, just gut a family. Yeah. The amount of therapy- Oof. individual and family therapy. Yes. I know. I just Which uh, didn't used to really be a thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. Commonly. Like who knows, like who knows like when that happened? Cause they said that the house sat vacant, vacant for many years before this yeah. family bought it. So it's like, yeah, that family, you, you got to get out of town because mm -hmm. you're kids, forever that family now forever that family. And kids are cruel, like so cruel in ways that they don't know they're cruel. Yep. And I can just imagine the 13 year old going back to school and somebody wanting to be a mofo mm. and just calling him a child killer, a, a brother totally. killer. Like kids say awful things. Yeah. I know it's uh, when tragedies Oof. like that strike families, I have a particular amount of empathy and sadness for them because I just, I just can't imagine. I just read this yeah. news article about this family up in Priest Lake this past weekend. I don't know the circumstances, but uh, the cops were called for a tragedy at a property dad was driving a car uh -huh. and the report is that a one and a half year old is deceased now. Like, I don't know if the yeah. kid just like ran in front of the car. Like, do you know, but you just think about all these moments uh, yeah. that, you know, make life so heavy mm -hmm. and just the amount of, um, resilience of the human spirit is really a beautiful thing. But like I also, know. Yeah. you know, it is so important. Just like that reminder of like, 
don't ever judge somebody else. You don't know what they're going through. I know. I do think about that, you know, not always, you know, not far from perfect, uh, but like. I don't, you're pretty close. Yeah. But like, you know, when you're out somewhere and let's say you have, uh, you're checking into a hotel and the front desk clerk just has attitude. Yep. I mean, I do try to think, I'm like, I have no idea what their day is like, what yeah. their life is like. Yep. They might just have a bad attitude. They might just, mm-hmm. you know, have a unprofessional demeanor in general, which is, you know, unfortunate for them. Yeah. But also they might not have that. And they might have found out that morning that uh, their brother died or something yep. just absolutely terrible happened. Yeah. Because it happens every day. Yep. It happens every single day. There is, as much as there is good and beauty in the world, there are many, many terrible, difficult, sad moments. Yeah. And we're, and we're all living in it all the time. Yep. Totally, totally. I know. But but I, I I think it's great that Maggie told this this little kid, like, he was trying to kind of play with her. Mm-hmm. She's like, okay, buddy, enough. Time to go. Yep, yep, exactly. And, and they never saw him again. So, like, maybe, you know, the the silver lining is that he got to move on. Maybe yeah, he was yeah. there looking for yeah. his family the whole time. They packed it up. They left. He was smiling. He, his spirit was stuck there. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I know. Here in Maggie, now I have a uh, Rod Stewart Maggie stuck in my head. Oh, what a I've, great song. Great song. I've I've had Rod Stewart. If you want my body, body and you think, think I'm sexy, sexy, come on, baby, let me know. It was We're, on a plane. I know. I'm like, we heard that somewhere recently, and I have not been able to clear it out of my brain. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first again. Okay, go. I would like to thank the uh, following Annabelles for supporting our show, which we appreciate so much on we Patreon. Do. Michael Whitmer, Amanda Butts, Audi. uh, Audi Laranaga Good job Carlos Delgado Hilarious There was a a Major League Baseball player With the exact same name That was a monster He was so good It's probably him Eric uh, Micheletti He said he loves our show Micheletti Eric Micheletti Dagnum Mong William Paulson Do you not get it? I just stared at Dagnum Mong No I don't get it Magnum Dong Oh, oh! They just changed the letters around. Magnum Dong. Oh, if they they switched the M and the D. Magnum Dong. I stared at it for Dang. so long. I was like, and I, was like Gosh, I wonder where this person's from. Like, I was, and then I'm like, you idiot. I noticed had the Hmong community in my head. I'm like, oh, they're probably from like Laos or you know somewhere over like, you know, Dag Dagnum Mong. Why are wrong? They are from Laos. I know, and they're like, hey, fuck you. Yeah, it's like, listen, people in America have this terrible joke about Magnum oh, Dong. Magnum so Dong. Like, oh, aren't you I've funny? I've that a million times. Uh, <laughs> William Paulson, <laughs> uh, a little baddie, and Kind wait, Kendra, and one more River Day. River Day. River Day sounds like a, maybe I was thinking of River Phoenix, but it sounds like a, like an actor or a band member, like River Day, very artistic name. I just finished watching Daisy Jones and the Six, which you'll mm-hmm. have no interest in watching. It's definitely like a female-centric show, but mm-hmm. it was based on a um, book and my friend was a costume designer on it. So I've been like dying to watch yeah. it. And uh, you said that and I immediately thought of like a um, Stevie Nicks kind of vibe. Ah, Fleetwood yeah. Mac, River yeah. Day. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'd like to thank the following Annabelle's also for supporting us on Patreon and letting us do what we do. Rachel Wooder, Rachel Fugate, Casey Witten. Oh, boy. Amizu? A-M-A-I-Z-U. Amizu. Daniel, uh, Danielle Metcalf, Derek Miranda, Chris O'Donnell, Nina DeMaria, McKenna Coppinger, and Matt um, Pollock. I really want to say Pollock. Wasn't Chris O'Donnell um, an, an, actor, actor? an actor who played Robin in Batman and Robin? Yeah. And him and the baseball player really love this show. Yeah, I love it. We have a one of the greatest Toronto Blue Jays to ever play the game, and, and uh, great you actor, know, and a good actor, fans of the show, support, yeah. big supporters of the Thank show. Thank you guys so much. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, how lucky are we? If you guys want to send us like any swag think, from yeah. like your projects or anything, or you'd like to promote us on your social media to really like help us like grow and develop the show, like we're no objections. 
I'm in my head right now because I'm trying to think of Carlos Delgado played mostly for the Toronto Blue Jays or the New York Mets. Oh boy, well you'll figure I mean, it out. I know. Soon I'm enough. I'm positive that every single person listening to this is, is either is, screaming one or the other. Is yep. Is is very into Carlos Delgado, and yeah, has an opinion one way or the other. I'm sure they do. Uh, and now for some spoopy shoutouts mm-hmm. to Andrew from Bean. Happy eighth anniversary. I love you. Thanks for being my rock, my light, and keeping me grounded. To Crystal from Crystal. Happy birthday to me. Also, Brianna, thank you for showing me scared to death. (laughs) To Priscilla from John, happy birthday and happy anniversary. Apparently, I don't know how calendars work. He's (laughs) very late. Uh, To Caden from Joe, happy birthday. Can't wait for more spoopy adventures together. I love you lots. I love every couple has like their own secret little Mm -hmm. language. It's so cute to me. To the main man from Little Bug, thank you for being my best friend and now my fiance. I love you the mostest. This couple has a really cute story that I won't share because it's very personal, but I loved the email Aww. that was sent to us and just want to say I'm super proud of what you've done with your life. It was oh, that's a awesome. Really, really cool. Very moving email. And uh, and big thanks to Carlos Delgado for just really um, kicking out a lot of great stats in the late 80s and early 90s and making some cool baseball cards. Do you guys know that Dan actually doesn't really care about sports that much, but he loves numbers and just reads uh, sports stats every morning to just, you know, help him feel like calm and just like ease his brain into the day. It's not that, weird at all. Do you know that Nikola Josic has been a triple-double machine in the NBA playoffs this year? What team do they play for? He played for? Denver Nuggets. Uh-huh. Do you yeah. want to tell any other like fun sports stats? Mm, Shohei Otani having a really good, uh, you know, year as a uh, pitcher and, uh, you know, uh, position player. He's yeah. probably going to be the first guy in Major League history to get over 250 strikeouts. Wow. And over um, 35 home runs in the same season. Who does he play for? Uh, Angels. Los Angeles Angels. Oh, that's not my team. Mm. Um, that's he's, really cool because aren't the, pitchers the, usually terrible hitters? Don't they normally not hit? Yeah, no. He's it's it, This uh, This situation hasn't happened uh, like this really since, uh, I mean, really never. But like Babe Ruth early on did that for a while. Babe Ruth started as a pitcher. He did? Yep. He was a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. I don't Red know Sox. a lot about sports, guys. And then he transitioned to the New York Yankees. But um, obviously he's, you know, like one of the best baseball players of all time. Sure, like yeah. Huge power hitter, home run record, all this stuff, you know, for years. And he was a really good pitcher actually before that. But he was never as good of a, as good as a pitcher as Shohei Otani is now. And Otani is, you know, it's hard to compare different eras. Yeah. But um, maybe not quite the power hitter, but but also maybe even a better power hitter than uh, Babe Ruth was. You know, it's just hard. I mean, he he doesn't have the stats that Babe Ruth did, but it's like, it's such a different era. It's really hard to compare. Well, and also like, can he, uh, how long has he been playing? Like, could he eventually have the stats that Babe Ruth had? Like, if Career he plays- stats? Prob- probably not because of uh, uh, COVID, because of some injuries early on. Oh. Pitchers get injured way more now than they used to just because they throw so much harder. Tommy John surgery, like, which is, uh, I think, Ote- uh, Shohei had already. Tommy John surgery? Mm-hmm. It's like, they, is that like uh, a rotator cuff thing? No, it's a tendon. I believe, thing? I'm speaking, I'm just pulling this from memory. I believe it's uh, a tendon in the elbow that gets uh, oh. f- fucked up. You're Tommy John. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't even remember where the name comes uh, from. He should probably have some PRP. It'll probably help a lot. Yeah, I bet he's. I bet he's doing all this I, stuff. I bet he's doing it. Yeah. Wait, who's right the, now? He's very healthy though. Who is it? Cy Young. Cy Young is who the Cy Young Award is named after. He was a pitcher uh, even, way back in the beginning of the 1900s. But like, even still, this guy, this new guy. I don't. What was his name again? Uh, Shohei Otani. Shohei. Mm-hmm. Otani. Otani. Where's he from? Japan. Uh, Japan. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's so hard to compare like uh, guys now, like pitchers in the you early- You guys can sign off if you don't care about sports. Pitchers in the early 1900s are going to have records. They're going to last forever because they don't pitch nearly the same amount of innings now. They don't pitch complete games the way they used to just because they oh. throw so much harder uh, now than they used to that they wear their bodies out faster. Mm. And so, you know, guys like Walter Johnson and Cy Young and all these, you know, olden days pitchers. Yeah. I mean, they could pitch, you know- uh, 350, 400 innings in a season, potentially. Like they would just pitch and pitch and pitch and pitch like three, four day rotations, you Damn. know, sometimes that's never going to happen again. Because now we know more about the body and we don't want to wear it down as much? No, because oh, we've we pushed pitch. training further and because like we've people have studied, you know, all the uh, exact right physics that go into pitching, they're maximizing their bodies in a different way uh-huh. and, and actually breaking down their bodies faster than ever before. Even mm. though they pitch less, People go into retirement now from a lot of, you know, like major uh, sports, professional sports, more beat up than people did 50 years ago Damn. because everybody is, you know, throwing faster, running faster, hitting harder. Like all the people are just maxing the body out like never before. Okay. One last baseball question that we can yeah. close out the show. Okay. You said they're pitching faster. So like what is an average, let's say like fastball look like now? Like what's the, that speed versus what was like an average fastball speed a long time ago? Do you have any idea? We don't know because they didn't have the radar gun. Oh. So they couldn't measure it back then. So it's all speculation. But the fastest pitch ever thrown uh, was Aroldis Chapman. He's a closer. He was uh, for the Reds and then the Yankees. I think he's with the Yankees right now. It's not weird that he knows 105, all this. I want to say it's definitely 105 miles per hour. I think it's 105.4 miles per hour. And then uh, and there's a guy for the Twins right now. I can't remember his na- how to say his name because I haven't heard it. I've just read it and it's kind of tricky. But um, he, he can throw over 104 miles per hour. So 105.5 Nolan, is the number to beat. Nolan, yeah, Nolan Ryan, they think, you know, um, when they didn't use the radar gun as much, might have thrown even faster than that. What There's, about Randy Johnson? Randy Johnson would throw over 100, 103, he, 104. He was like a phenom. Like, again, I don't know a ton about baseball, but yeah. I grew up in a, like, sports-oriented family. Mm-hmm. So he, my, my like, uh, athlete references are, like, from when I was, like, 15, oh, yeah. 10. So I can tell you a lot. He's unique. Ben so tall. And actually, yeah. what, what the advantage he had, just a random thing, and then I can stop. Yeah, no, that's fine. Is Randy Johnson was, I believe he's like six, seven, six, six eight, yeah, he's somewhere in there. Really tall. And when you're talking about the mound being, I think it's like um 60 some feet away from home plate. Uh-huh. Just because his body stretched a little further. Oh, yeah. That the makes release sense. point is a little bit closer. And the angle is a little bit different than people were used to because he was so fucking tall. Yeah. That um he was that much. So even though like Let's say he's throwing 103 miles per hour. It might seem like 105 or 106. Because it's getting to you that much quicker. It's getting there quicker. And then the, the angle it's coming down at everything, like a lot of things mechanics-wise worked into his advantage. But he's the only guy. He threw a pitch one time so hard, a pigeon got in the way in between the batter and the ball, literally fucking exploded that bird. Oh, Daddy, quick death. He's a big-time photographer right now, too. He is? Randy, Randy Johnson, Johnson is a photographer? Yeah, he's a sports photographer and wildlife. Yeah, he's like... He's like it's like his next famous career. That's yeah. awesome. Cool. Well, he can you know. I can provide the, some of the sports stats, and Tyler can provide photography stats, which is his passion. <laughs> All day long. <laughs> oh my gosh, well, I love it. I love it. I I would contest that I think that like one of the best uh, jobs in baseball, if you're going to be a player, is to just be like you know an outfielder. Like I know you have to throw the ball mm-hmm. back in, but not you don't have to throw the ball nearly as much <laughs> with as much aggression as a catcher or a pitcher. Oh uh, yeah, because like if if you're good, yeah, and if you have a great pitcher, even if you're catching a lot of pop flies out yeah. in right field, there ain't nobody on base. It's like your shoulders not going to be busted, your knees aren't going to be busted. Yeah. Like I feel like in the sports world, that might be one of the least beat up 
players. Or designated hitter. Designated don't hitter. play the field. Don't kicker, have to pitch. Kicker, if we're talking football. football yeah. Yep. But like golf, like I don't think people ever really stop to think about like golf fucks yeah. your body up. Yeah. Big time. After all that, I'm not even going to read our long thank you. We've we love already you guys. Been, we're Sorry about say, our sports. We're just going to say, enjoy your nightmares, creeps, and peepers. <laughs> uh, see you next week for episode 200 and hope you were scared to death. If you like that, join the Patreon. This is bonus episodes. <laughs> Bye, guys. If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through, but have no home here within scared to death. And Magic Productions. You want my body, body and, and you think, think I'm sexy. sexy? Come on, baby, let me know. It was we're, on the plane. I know. I'm like, we heard that somewhere recently, and I have not been able to clear it out of my brain.